Welcome to Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton, and I'm here with Danielle DeBuncho, founder and CEO of Via Technic. Danielle and I are going to talk a little bit about digital journeys, how digital transformation works for companies across the construction ecosystem. Danielle, you want to talk a little bit about what you've been doing at, at Via Technic? Hi, Hugh. Um, yeah, perfect. Uh, thanks so much for having me again. Um, so here at Via Technic, we are a um, virtual design and construction consulting and implementation firm. So kind of big picture, we're working with companies in a few ways. First is through consulting or advisory. So starting to understand what their corporate strategy looks like, how a digital strategy could align with that, where they are today, where they want to go, and what that roadmap looks like in between. Um, we help with implementation. That's sort of the second way we work with companies. So rather than just saying, all right, here's your strategy or here's a standard, good luck, go for it. We actually help them implement it. So we're seeing a lot of the successes and failures along that journey. Um, and then the third way we work with companies is through education. So a lot of um, bespoke uh, training and learning objectives, but then we've also partnered with Stanford University um, and their Center for Integrated Facilities Engineering, Stanford SIFI, to co-deliver the Virtual Design and Construction Certificate course. That's interesting. I didn't know about the the um, the partnership with with SIFI and, and the, the VDC course. That's great. Yeah, thanks. That's new. That's new this year. So more to come on that. I think it'll be a really exciting way to move the industry forward. Yeah, I just had someone ask me about that, so remind me later. So t let's talk a little bit about the, how you think of the the journey. I mean, you you talked about um, almost the way you just described what you do is the beginning where you think strategy, then you implement, but then you train people so they can continue to operate and improve on their own. How do you connect? How do you work with companies in the beginning in the strategy phase? Yeah, so there's, I think there's a lot to dig into there. How I typically approach this idea of a digital journey is framing it just as that journey, right? It's not um, something where you can just think of that pinnacle where you plan to go and suddenly you're going to be there. Um, you have to, I sometimes say you have to learn to walk before you run and <laughs> maybe actually learn to crawl before you walk. Um, and you need to to understand and appreciate that journey. There's there's a beauty to that journey, um, and it's a, and it's an essential step of the way. So, oh, go ahead. That's okay. I was going to say, and it feels like some of the reason for that, again, given this this kind of three parts that you walked through, is if you're jumping ahead too much, you don't have people that know what to do with what you jump to. I think if you jump ahead too much, there's a few things. Um, one, yeah, you didn't bring your people along the way. And people's complex, right? It's it's the people within your organization. But there's also external stakeholders, right? Your partners, your collaborators, the software, hardware, you know, technology vendors, there's your clients. So there's a larger stakeholder picture um, that needs to really be understood. And all of them need to go with you through that journey. So, so one, you've potentially left some of your people behind. Um, two, you didn't, you didn't fail yet, right? You didn't fail, learn, iterate, improve. Um, and three, you may not really understand why you're going there. So that's, that's the other big piece of this. I, I often call it like a problem centric and customer centric approach. Mm -hmm. I know that seems obvious, 
right? Like obviously you should have a problem that you're trying to solve. Um, but we see a lot of people getting caught up in the what's possible, which is awesome, right? You should definitely paint that picture about the art of the possible, but you need to understand what that means for your organization, right? What risks does your organization face? What problems does your organization have today? And what does it mean if those problems were solved, right? And that's the opportunity. So I think it's important to start with that problem in mind. You, you mentioned a word that might not sound great to folks um, that I want to dig into a little bit, and that is fail. I think that, you know, living in, the, in a digital environment where things are software and, and you're iterating a lot, the word fail gets used, you know, to mean we've tried a thing and we learned from it. Let's talk a little bit about what you mean by that and, and how, it, how, it, how it grounds people. Thanks for asking that because construction is an interesting industry. Construction faces large-scale risks, right? You don't want your building to fail um, because there's lives on the line. You don't want a failure on the construction site. Again, there's lives on the line. Um, there's big picture implications to large-scale failures. So I think a lot of the construction industry then is mobilized around this idea of risk mitigation. Um, but when you think through innovation, when you think through entrepreneur, entrepreneurship or intrapreneurship, I suppose, in, in these examples, um, you need to fail. So what I advise our clients to do is sort of set up a safe place to fail, right? It's, it's not actually that big of a deal if you um, have a pilot project um, where you've set up some sort of safe parameters, right? You have a budget allocated. You know that it's not going to cause this large-scale risk um, of failure so that you can learn from those mistakes, right? It's this idea of like prototyping, testing it, and improving it. Um, and I think that's important for, for construction companies to start to shift their mind away from failure in the traditional sense as it's an, it's, it's an essential part of that digital journey. Yeah. Wouldn't you also argue, especially at the smaller scale, that some of this is like fitting the tools so that it works the right way. I mean, some, someone comes to you with some, with a type of software or a product and it isn't fitted to the company yet. And the way you do that is by pilots that don't work as well as you want at first, but you learn from it and then tweak the tool or tweak the, the, the application of it. So, I mean, I think an analogy there is, is that is, is kind of fitting and honing a tool. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I love that. Ab absolutely. And I like, um, thank you for using the word tool, <laughs> because I think sometimes when we think through innovation and, and technology journeys, um, you know, there's this idea that it can be a toy, right? The shiny object. And, and it really is a tool, right? It's, it's fitting, it's fitting a job. It's solving a problem. Um, and kind of closing the loop on this idea of failure, I urge our clients, um, and it's hard to do in practice, right? I own my own company, so we have to think about how to do this ourselves as well. How many times is, have you failed, right? Maybe there's KPIs built around that. So I think oftentimes, um, broad scale, our firms are focused on um, productivity KPIs, ROI sort of KPIs. And there should be in this innovation realm, KPIs around failing, because if you didn't fail, you didn't learn, you didn't push yourself hard enough, right? You stayed within your comfort zone. And I mean, I think that that can be cast in ways other than, you know, that still mean the same thing, but how many, how many, how many new products did you try that you didn't roll out? Right. Exactly. How many, you know, how many 
events did you have that didn't quite work out, but you, you know, you'll do, you'll do something different again. Exactly. I think, um, kind of like what I said before, it's about pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. It's flexing those new muscles, trying something new for the first time in your organization, because when you do succeed, it's going to mean a lot. And do you find that after companies have, have done a few pilots or done a few, you know, done a few tests and experiments, the tone in, in the company starts to change a little bit? It should. Yeah, it should. And I think the tone in the company, though, only changes if people are telling those stories. Um, so when innovation stays within a digital technology group or the innovation arm of the company within the virtual design and construction or, or BIM teams, within the field technology teams, right? And if they're not telling the story, um, then it won't spread throughout the organization. And so that's where kind of closing the feedback loop, what did we learn? Uh, how do we measure that? What, what, what metrics did we put in place and how did it come to fruition? And telling that story, I think is really important because that's when the culture then starts to change. They have to see those successes, see those failures and understand what that means for the organization as a whole. And what that means, you know, not on just this one project that was a pilot, but on future projects. And how have you found companies do that? I mean, you got almost by definition, construction companies are are physically all over the place, right? They're they're they've got sites, you know, strewn across states. How do you how do you do that? How have people told that story in a way that makes it makes a dent? Actually, I'll answer that's a really good question. I'll answer that in two ways. So one, I think that there's a little bit um, of an organic evolution to storytelling. Um, making sure that people in your organization have a voice, that you've built a culture where people can can speak up. Um, and I think that that promotes sort of natural storytelling. Construction by its very nature is collaborative. Mm-hmm. All these different people are coming together on a project um, from different walks of life, from different construction companies. They're coming together on that project. That project finishes. They all go to that next project, right? So there's a new cast of characters that you can tell those stories and past experiences to. Um, so I think that there's an that there's an aspect of it that can be organic and driven by culture. I do, however, think it's in co- companies' best interest to be thoughtful of, around that, especially important in today's virtual environment. I mean, you mentioned construction companies have their teams spread all over the place. That's like never been more true than it is today. Yeah. 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 Um, so there's definitely things that people can do to promote that. I, you know, internally, we have a couple different things. We have a Via Technic University platform. And I think a lot of companies have something similar where people are encouraged to put their uh, knowledge into it. And um, others then are encouraged to go consume that content, consume that knowledge. Um, so, so we have that as a platform. We have an internal platform that we've called Nucleus. Um, where people are encouraged to share their ideas. Um, and then, um, you know, our internal chat chat channels and, and chat systems, you know, like, a, uh, you know, Slack or, mm-hmm. or whatever people are using, right? Microsoft Teams, um, those internal sort of systems, making sure that they have those technology platforms set up to encourage the, that storytelling. I've come across some folks uh, on the innovation teams of some of the bigger GCs that will do things like try hackathons, not because they want a solution, but because they want people thinking like that. And uh, you know, other things like innovation um, competitions. And it's more about 
mindset than it is about necessarily thinking they're tapping into some reservoir of, of pent up ideas. Um, have you seen companies do things like that? I like that. So, um, I think that brings up a really good point. You know, hackathons, those internal innovation challenges, innovation spotlights, right? Making sure that, hey, if, if there's some big corporate retreat or all hands sort of meeting, that innovation has its time to um, come to the forefront. Those are important because it spurs momentum, it gets people excited, and it shows people within the organization that the company cares, they're putting resources and time behind these sort of things, but they're not necessarily building the daily habit. Um, so, you know, one of my favorite speakers, Simon Sinek, um, I credit him with kind of planting this idea in my head, equates those sort of events to going to the dentist. You do that twice a year. Yes, you have to go to the dentist to keep good hygiene habits, but that's not going to make or break your, your actual dental hygiene. Um, you need to brush your teeth every day, twice a day or more. Mm -hmm. You need to floss. So I've heard. Yeah. Um, and so it's those. So while going to the dentist or these big hackathons or competitions or innovative innovation spotlights are important, it's the daily habit that's actually going to move your organization forward. Does that make sense? So I, yeah, I think it, really, it really does. How, so what do people do to build that daily habit? Um, I mean, one, making sure that they have budget on their projects to actually try some of this, right? So it's not happening on one project and the innovation group is leading it, but there's little things happening on all their projects. Like we talked about before, which I, which I thought was a good question was telling those stories. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it needs to be a constant part of what we do, not something that's thought about once a quarter. Yeah, that makes sense. If, let's go back to this, this um, again, this strategy to implementation and so on. How do you find people, how do you advise people to start implementations? Let's say they've got their strategy right. What, what, it, you know, what, what frameworks do you usually want to give people? That's a good question. So the biggest framework that, you know, I hear a lot in the industry as well that, that we use is this idea of people, process, and technology. I think in the industry, People are saying people process technology all the time, um, but there's a deeper framework that aligns with that. Um, so if you, if you have your strategy, you understand your corporate goals and objectives, the project goals and objectives that align with that. Now you need to understand what people, what processes and what technology needs to be in place to execute it. And how do those things play together? So if we break down each of those buckets, some of the questions that I ask as part of that people process and technology framework, let's take process. Um, what processes are currently in place that need to change in order to enable this uh, di digital transformation? What processes are in place that are actually working quite well that need to stay in place um, and need to sort of be the foundation of how we move forward? When you think of people, it's a lot more complex, right? There's internal and external stakeholders. And why I sometimes segment internal versus external stakeholders is you may not have as much control over how external stakeholders behave. Right. So now you need to think of other ways of influence, right? Maybe there are contractual methods, right? If you're an owner 
Um, you have contracts with, with the design team and the construction teams. If you're the GC, you have contracts with the trade contractors and so on and so forth. So yes, there's sometimes contractual measures that you can put in place, but sometimes there's other ways that you have to pull on influencing them. So internal, external stakeholders, what skill sets do they need to have? Um, and their skill sets to kind of think of from like a hard technology sort of skill set versus maybe some of those soft management sort of skill sets or, you know, a data mindset sort of skill set. And is that maybe one of the reasons, again, you, you like to say walk before you run, is that a data mindset, yeah, you can give someone training and hope they get it, or you can put them in something that's at one level and get them used to it and then become more sophisticated. Is that is that part of why you approach it that Call way? Call it a journey. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because um, honestly, you could take like a three-week Revit course and you're probably pretty good at Revit. You're not going to change your mindset in three days, mm-hmm. Right or three weeks. So, so it is a journey. Absolutely. Um, and then the technology piece, um, as the third leg of that people process and technology framework, um, oddly enough, I sometimes say is the easy part, right? Um, you identify the hardware, you identify the software that you need to purchase, right? It's sort of a monetary decision. Um, where I think it gets complex is where this technology, how it how it plays with each other and how it integrates. Um, so I'd say that people process and technology is one framework that we really use for implementation. Um, the other, you know, is this idea of um, it kind of goes back to that data journey. So everybody wants the dream of robotics in the field. Everybody wants industrialized construction. Um, people are talking about smart buildings, smart cities, um, but you can't get there if your work processes aren't digitized and then if those digital assets aren't connected and then if we're not doing analytics on top of it. So, so that's kind of a, another framework, that data journey um, that we'll use with our clients during implementation. And where do you, where do you tend to start then? What's the, what's the first thing you think, you know, if a company was starting from zero, which nobody is, but if they were, where, where would they start? Yeah, great question. Um, so we have this concept of the digital environment linked to the physical environment. Um, so honestly, I want to make sure that whatever they're building, um, there's digital representation of that. Um, you know, BIM as an example, right, is that digital representation of the physical building environment. Um, you can start to boil the ocean when thinking through how to digitize your processes and what data you can start collecting. So I go back to that. What problem are you trying to solve? So we'll ask our clients, you know, what are those problems that keep the CEO up at night? Where are they losing money on their projects, right? Mm -hmm. What is causing scheduled delays on their projects? And just starting to get some of those like gut feel questions, right? So we'll have clients that say, well, I think that our biggest area of profit erosion is rework in the field. I said, okay, good, right? Now now we're starting with something. You've identified a problem, profit erosion. You think that rework is a big cause of your profit erosion. What information would you need to actually quantitatively answer that? Do you have that information or are you collecting that information in a digital format today or not, right? So they're like, okay, well, we, you know, we have construction P6 CPM schedules. So that that we feel good about. We have the BIM, so we know what our materials should be. You know, we're doing quantity takeoffs, and, and that's in a digital format. 
But you know, at the end of the day, we have all these like paper material tickets and our, our field daily reports are still on paper and then we scan them in. So it's like, okay, well, that's where we need to start then. Let's yeah. talk through digital daily reports. Let's talk through digital material tracking of what's on the, on the site. Let's start connecting that. And let's see if your hypothesis plays out. And if it does play out and rework is, is in fact causing 10% profit erosion on average on your projects, well, then let's start thinking through how to solve it. So it kind of goes back to that problem-centric approach. Yeah. Well, and also what I hear you saying is, is, you know, kind of aligned with anything having to do with data is the first thing to do is to digitize the data that you've got lying around in pieces of paper. The problem is that often takes a little while, not just to get done, but then to get enough of it that you can see things. Um, have you found that, that it takes a little convincing for people to, to invest upfront in that? It does. So, so here's the data journey that we think through. The first step is digitization, like you mentioned. The second step step is integrating those digital, um, I mean, we don't want them in silos, right? So that data needs to be integrated. Once it's integrated, we can start doing analytics on it. From analytics, that drives insight and that drives action. People want to get to action. So when I tell them, well, first you have to digitize it, then you have to integrate it. Then we need to do analytics to get you the good insights, then to take action. Well, that was like five steps <laughs> instead yeah. of the action that they wanted. So yes, but um, there's sort of no alternative. And sometimes it's like, well, okay, we can like beca- we can get overwhelmed by the fact that we've just talked through a five-step journey when you wanted action. And the fact that we're talking through that overwhelming feeling means that you're already starting behind the ball. Like you're right. already yeah. slower. Um, but I think he- here's the thing we then start to say, all right, what's some low hanging fruit, right? Because the, the, the journey never ends. That's the other yeah. thing about a digital journey, right? Yeah. It's not like you've reached the peak of Mount Everest and then you're done. Right. Um, it never ends. That's, that's all business. You, yeah. There's always another thing that you can be improving because the world is, moves and so does your competition. Exactly. So we try to pick those short-term and long-term wins Some short-term wins are really important because it builds momentum in the organization. It gets people excited. It gets the the C-suite and the board to put funding behind this, right? That continues the momentum building. Um, And then those longer-term wins, right, now have the resources behind it to go out and, you know, spend a couple years to, to go through that journey. Well, you proved the point by that point, haven't you? You proved that it worked here or there. Do, do you think of, of, of certain areas as a good place to hunt for, for low-hanging fruit? Like daily reports seem to come up a lot, not just with you, just period. Um, are there other places? And maybe that's not one, but is, are there places where you, you go to look for low-hanging fruit? Yeah. I mean, I think the low-hanging fruit sort of problems that I see in our industry, um, you know, one is productivity, and there's a lot behind that. But are, are people um, working in the right place at the right time? Are people moving forward consistently, not forwards and then back because there's rework, or forward and then back because they put something in the wrong place, or forward and then back because they were waiting for material, right? Are we, are we constantly driving that field forward? So I think, you know, anything around productivity is something that gets me really excited. Um, and then anything that starts to offer transparency 
to the executive level, right? To that C-suite, to that boardroom. Um, And I say that because I think a lot of times when it comes to innovation and technology, it's like (laughs) hidden in that innovation group's realm and only they know how to use the software, right? And so you have to go find that like tech guy at the company and get them to show you what's happening. If it, if, if you can get the C-suite, the boardroom, the executives, the decision makers, right. If you can get them transparency into what happens, then you can get them excited. It goes back to your ideas too, right. About getting them excited, telling those stories. Um, In my experience, having that executive sponsor means you get funding means that you're allowed to make mistakes and learn from them. Um, and, and you're allowed to spread it through the organization. So that's the other area that I think is important is um, offering transparency and visibility to, to stakeholders around the, the company. Yeah, as, that's great. And, and as you think about um, these, these steps, you know, what, what's, a, what's a good idea of, of scale that's in terms of time that someone should assume, look, we're going to have to invest in this to clean it up and clear it up for six months or a year or two years, what's a scale that you often will tell people, look, this is going to pay out, but you're going to have to bear with me for a while. Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. And I don't know that I have like one singular answer to it. You know, we've gone into organizations and done 90 day engagements where we've in 90 days shown a lot of value. Um, So I think the, the speed that you move, which I think is sort of the question that, that you're asking, right? The speed that you moved, that that you move, and the pace that you start to see results, um, I think has a couple different factors, right? How big is the problem that you're trying to solve, and how big is your organization? How nimble are they already? Right. Well, you, I mean, you just did sort of answer it, and I mean, I think it, you're right. It, you can say that it depends on what on the organization and what you're doing, but you can turn it on its head and say we're going to do something and I need three in three to six months, we need to be able to tell a story. It's not going to be everything, but it's enough to get people moving and, and believing in it. Um, you know, in contrast, I spoke with a, a, a someone from a, a, a general contractor in the, the uh, Atlant- mid Atlantic, I think, I think they're in Pennsylvania. Um, and they took two years to get all of their Procore data aligned and in the right way across all their company, uh, which had 50 or so projects at any given moment. Um, the, the value of that, and along the way, they had little wins, which was great, but the value of that is now they have the ability to see in pretty much real time when projects are in trouble so that the, the president and the, the, the head, op, you know, head of operations can say, let's send some people over to this one because they're having trouble. So they set up, I think it was 10 key metrics. The amount of effort that that took, because now everybody on every site every day has to enter things the same way, which is not easy. Absolutely. So I think there's like a couple key learnings in that story that you just told that we've touched on before, right? It's this idea of metrics. So they actually set up 10 metrics um, and were tracking them and knew that those metrics were important to their organization. Don't track a metric that's not important to your organization. I think that's important. And it doesn't drive a decision. I mean, you know, profitability is important, but it may not be a decision that that you're asking people to make. Right. And maybe that's so obviously profitability is always important. Right. But that's maybe that's not the um, greatest strategic concern of the organization right now. Maybe the greatest strategic concern of the organization right now is growth. Right. And they're okay with a reduced profitability percentage 
to get to a higher level of growth because they know that that means they're going to drive profitability later on. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, it's about understanding what's important to the organization, what problem you're trying to solve. And then the most important part is what is the value if that problem solved? What does that mean for you? What, what opportunity does that open up? Um, I love this. So when you think a little bit about, we talked before about ways to um, kind of change the tone of the of the organization, whether it was comp- competitions or everyday storytelling and, and making sure the channels are there. How do you look at at the third leg of the stool that you, you opened the conversation with, which is education and training? How have you seen companies use that? So I think that there's there's kind of different, different things to look at, right? There's the technology skills, you know, the hard skills related to how do you software, how do you, how do you software, how do you use the hardware? Um, And, you know, something like that is for the, the users of this new technology. But even if you're not the person that's going to open up that software on the, on a daily basis, there may be ways that you're touching it in different ways. Um, and so it's important to think through some of those like management skill sets um, that uh, everybody in the company needs to learn um, how to tell the value proposition and how to calculate the value proposition. You know, that's something that people in organizations may need to learn. Um, I think there's a difference between sort of like knowledge and skills, if that makes sense too. Right. Um yeah. You know, there's there's the hard skills that you need to learn and then there's the knowledge of what's happening. And and that's important that that permeates throughout your entire organization. You know, the the SIFI virtual design and construction certificate course um, has very little to do with how to create the BIM. Right. And then how, how to integrate it with lean construction practices. It's much more about the value proposition, that overall framework and, and teaching people that. Um, and making sure that if they understand the framework, if they understand the value proposition, if they understand how these pieces come together, they can execute it on their projects. Um, it's much more than the than the hard skills technology approach. So we're we're thinking about it. Um, anybody who's who's touching this part of the organization likely needs to know something. Yeah. So, we're, so we define what they need to know, um, and then come up with the path for them to learn that. One of the things that that um, you know management trainers will often talk about is that that you need to shift what people think matters, what they value, and that's part of growing and that's part of changing. And do you find that that as you're you're going through this digital uh, digital transformation journey, that that people start to value different things? I mean, to further illustrate my point, one of the things that Lean tells you is certainly in the manufacturing. Um, realm is stop valuing using the, the the most making the most use of your machines and start valuing making the most use of your facility and and efficiency and 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 overall profitability that's the customer centric view versus the you know supply centric view where you're saying you need to make the most high quality products or in the case of um, of construction is I, I want to make the most use of not make the most use of machines but produce the best building the most efficiently as possible. And even if that means someone has to sit somewhere for a little bit, do you, that's a long winded way of asking. Do you find that as you take people through this journey, you, they're valuing, they're seeing value in things that they didn't before? Absolutely. And I'll, I'll add this. 
I don't think all organizations see the same thing, nor should they, mm. right? Um, each, each organization's digital journey is unique to them based on the markets that they play in, the size of the organization, where they want to go in the future, what their you know, corporate mission and vision statements are, um, who, who those leaders of the company are, it, and it should be different. Yeah, um, I think, yeah. And I think what's powerful um, when companies are thoughtful about how they go through their digital journey. And I, and I say that because like, you're kind of going through it no matter what, whether you're thoughtful or not, right. you're going through it, the pace you're going through, it's just going to change. But when companies are thoughtful about their digital journey, um, they're, they're thoughtful about how their people are changing with them. Um, and it makes me think kind of going back to your other question too, around the, training and skill set aspect of this, we should sort of think about it in, in three different ways, right? I mentioned that knowledge and skills are different, right? There's that overall knowledge, there's that mindset shift, then there's the hard skills that people need to learn. And I think the third aspect of it that's that's important is discipline. And it goes back to the idea of habits, right? And then making this part of your daily course of business. Having the discipline to follow through, track the metrics, um, follow the processes, and just make sure that it's habit, I think is the third part of this that's very important. That's very cool. Um, I, I want to take that idea of, of you know, changing values and changing the digital transformation more broadly and talk a little bit about people. So you know, pre-COVID, there was a, a lot of consternation, a lot of concern about not having enough people in the industry, specifically in the skilled trades, but it was a general issue. Um, are you finding that, that you know, again, pre-COVID and presumably post-COVID, who knows where we are right now, that the digital journey is, is a tool for answering some of those questions of recruitment and, and kind of inclusion? Yeah, there's like a lot of ways to think about it. So... Um, yes, <laughs> pre-COVID and even today, um, in the midst of COVID, I, I do think people are sort of struggling to find enough skilled labor. Um, so that is a problem that people are tackling. Um, and I think there's like a couple different things happening. One is as these companies go through their digital journey and as, um, you know, that digital journey then drives more things like robotics or industrialized construction, right? And these different sort of technology-enabled construction methods. One, it means that different skill sets are needed in the industry, right? Mm -hmm. We need to attract the best and the brightest minds from manufacturing, from software development. Um, so it's like, oh, we've in a way almost exacerbated the need for skilled labor. But then at the same time, we've also made the industry more attractive to a broader group of people, right? I right. think it's almost opened it up, right? If you think through industrialized construction, you're now in a controlled, um, controlled environment. You're going to the same project every day, right? You've taken away some of the hazards that the construction site faces, um, and so potentially you've made it a more appealing industry to attract more people to construction. So, so it's sort of interesting and I'm not sure exactly how it'll play out, right? On one end, we need new skill sets to come in, but then on the other end, potentially we've made an industry that's more appealing to a broader group of people. Well, also, it, I, I think it, it, it opens up 
new things. It, it opens up new skill sets, new new needs for employment, new needs for. I mean, unlike construction or manufacturing, you you can't really move the building of a building overseas. So so some of the concerns about the digital transformation on a workforce um, are are probably you know a holdover from people down the road that lost their job when it got shipped over somewhere. Whereas that's really less of an issue um, than, you know, when you're building something locally. Yeah, um, I don't see that as an issue. I mean, um, it's not like people are going away on job sites um, or, or, or in the construction industry. Um, it's it's going to be this like data driven and, you know, potentially there's an aspect of, of robotics and, and automation and, and manufacturing that comes into construction. Um, but I don't think that there's this, dystopian future where hundreds of, you know, thousands of jobs are lost at the same time. um, That means our workforce does, does need to consistently uh, retool and continue to learn Um, because what it means to be a project engineer today or what it means to be a superintendent today is different um, than what it, what it meant before. And it's going to continue to evolve. And, in my opinion, right, the rate of change is increasing. Um, so you definitely need to continue to to learn and grow. For sure. And, and it, it, I mean, it's, it's also pretty uneven. I mean, one of the, the things about the built environment is it includes everything, right? It includes the house and the, the, the you know, addition to your house, and it includes a 70-story building in, in downtown Manhattan. Yeah, so, you know, very broad. You'll have people still doing things, you know, in pretty, in pretty old ways, in 20 years when they're building something smaller, but larger, larger uh, owners and, and developers, especially on the data center side, are really expecting, you know, new, entirely new school uh, skill sets. What we're seeing is that, you know, owner demands are becoming, you know, owners are demanding more, right? Which means that projects are becoming more complex and, it's driving new ways of building. And I think that that's good, right? If you look at Silicon Valley, right? How do you build for a Google? How do you build for a Facebook, a Microsoft, an Amazon and build it the same way we built things 30, 40 years ago, right? They won't let you. You need to bring in the same type of technology that those companies are bringing into their organizations and are bringing into the world, right? Which Which is an exciting prospect even if it means that, you know, a little bit of discomfort along the way. Um, <laughs> yes. w- one of the things that I w- we were hinting at earlier is this idea, again, of the, of the composition of the workforce. So, you know, construction is famously, yeah, the, the median age is, is 47 or now 48. Um, you know, and that speaks a little bit to um, the ability to include new people. How are you seeing that change? Whether it's just younger people, but also you know, a little bit more ethnic and, and, and gender diversity. Cause it, it, it is a little bit of a monolithic group. Uh, if you, if, if you look in the past, yeah. how are you seeing that get addressed? Thank, thanks for asking that because I think broad, right. If I take a step back, this idea of, of diversity and inclusion is very core to innovation. Um, it's, it's a central part of, um, the people side of the people process and technology framework. Right. Um, and it's an essential component of how an organization should make the culture shift to be able to go through that digital journey. 
what happens? What what happens? Sorry to just jump in there, but what happens when you do that? What happens when you have a more diverse workforce? How does that how does that help with innovation? Yeah, at a fundamental level, it means that new ideas are being brought into the organization. Um, but that's where this aspect of of inclusion comes in. So I, when I think of diversity and inclusion, one idea I sort of always keep in the back of my mind is that the most valuable aspect that any person brings to a project, to an organization, right? The, the, the best aspect that they can bring to, you know, via, via Technic or that we can bring to our clients is the part of their selves that doesn't overlap with anybody else in the room, right? Mm-hmm. It's that totally unique experience that only they had, right? It's that, it's that mindset that they have based on where they were coming from in the world. And they're bringing that, aspect to the room, right? And and I think it's important to note because it doesn't overlap with anybody else's, it's the most valuable. We need that idea to get out. But because it doesn't overlap with anybody else, it's potentially the hardest part to get out. It's that part where when you say that idea, people are like, well, that sounds weird, right? Or I never thought of that. Um, So we need to create inclusive environments where anybody feels comfortable sharing that unique idea. And so I think that's the aspect of diversity and inclusion that gets at what people are always saying, right? Like it, it, it creates more innovative companies, companies who are, who are diverse, outperform companies who are not. Um, so, you know, we see those studies, we know that that's true, but I think sometimes we don't understand why it's true and in my in my opinion, I think why it's true is because we're bringing those ideas that only we have, um, you know, based on where where we were coming from, you know, both from an industry, you know, gender, racial, ethnic, you know, all sorts of kind of parts of yourself, right, come together to to create those ideas. Um, but I think that's what really um, drives innovation. I think you also ask, in my experience, um, is you also ask better questions when it is, you don't settle into that wink and a nod um, kind of group think, right? Where everybody's sort of the same and they grew up the same way and they view the world similarly. So they settle into assumptions that, 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 you know, like I said, it's kind of a wink and a nod, but if, if you're coming from somewhere different, you may be asking, hang on a minute, why, why aren't we asking these questions? Yeah, exactly. Right. Di- a, a diverse team, they all came from different places. So it would be, pretty odd for them to all come up with the same idea and to all potentially agree on some idea that's thrown out. So they ask new questions and they ask them in different ways. Um, and a concept kind of outside of to just diversity and inclusion that, that I try to think about is like, hey, sometimes it's okay to like come up with the worst idea, right? It doesn't, you don't have to always make sure it's like the best idea, just come up with some idea, right? Or ask some question to get the conversation going and to start to get those good ideas out. Because I don't think, um, actually a book that I really like is uh, by Steve Johnson. It's this idea of where good ideas, or sorry, it's this book called Where Good Ideas Come From. And um, it's very rarely like this light bulb goes off. Oh, innovative idea. Let's go do it. Um, It's these collisions of multiple ideas, or it's this like little idea that grows and grows and grows over time. And so if we can bring diverse people together and really draw on their past expertise and draw from their new mindsets, um, you know, those good ideas will only improve. 
So I'm going to end with, um, or anyway, the last piece to talk about is, you know, something you and I talked about before, this entrepreneurial mindset or intrapreneur, but it's the same idea. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, what you mean when you say that and, and how companies might think about it? I think we touched on a lot of these ideas before, right? My, my entrepreneurial mindset is that um, there has to be some level of failure. Like, no, you don't want the project to fail or the company to, to go down. Um, but you have to find ways to fail fast and iterate. You have to look for this, you know, the idea of the minimum viable product, right? To create a mock-up, to learn something new, try something new. Um, you have to start with the problem and the customer in mind. Yep. Um, you know, when we think of the problem, I'll often tell our team this idea of vitamins versus painkillers. And sometimes I'll even like segment, you know, painkillers like a, like a Tylenol or Advil versus like a morphine. You know, vitamins are nice to have. That speaks to the opportunity. That speaks mm -hmm. to the art of the possible. It'd be really great if we did this. Um, but at the same time, you're okay if you don't take your vitamins. I actually forgot to take my vitamins this morning, and I'm usually pretty good about it, right? And so um, they're, they're more of like a nice to have. But hey, when you have a headache, you might really need that Advil to get you through the day. Right. When you have a big pain, you know, not only do you need a morphine to get you through that, but it's, it solves your pain so well, it's addictive. And that's the sort of mindset that I think entrepreneurs have that um, large organizations can learn to embrace. I like this idea uh, that you brought up of MVP. So this minimum viable product is saying it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be good enough for someone to use it and discover whether they, it works or not. I think that's really different from how lots of companies, not just in construction, have, have thought. Um, how, how do you find companies kind of organized for that? So some large organizations are organized very counter to that. Right. Um, and that's okay, right? They're, they're multi-billion dollar organizations for a reason. Um, but because of that, they're not nimble. Um, because of that, they're afraid to put something out in the industry that doesn't speak to their brand. Um, so one, I think that you can probably still find a pilot project where you can, um, you know, do this prototype iter iteration and testing process. Um, but if not, I think that's where larger construction companies do and should rely on partners. Um, and I think we see a lot of momentum, you know, in the, in the AEC technology, like venture capital space with academic organizations, um, with with start you know with the startup ecosystem and you know find those organizations where you can partner with them and th they can fail fast right they're nimble um, and you've sort of like learned through them and then hey when when we have failed fast and iterated and now know what to do and now we're at a scaling sort of um, phase in the in the digital journey well that's what your organization's already really great at. So now let's go scale what already worked. I see a lot of companies um, take this like innovation partnered with process improvement type approach, right? There might be like an innovation group that's set up to do those mock-ups, minimum viable products and prototyping, and then partner with, you know, it's, it's like an operational excellence, right? Or a process improvement sort of group that now scales it. I think those, those that's really valuable. Yeah. I mean, I think we can end there. If, if you were to 
suggest a company or large, small, um, take a next step? Where, what's a good way for them? What are good questions for them to ask? I would ask them to define a problem that they feel often, right? Something that they feel every day, but a specific problem that if solved can change the course of your business, right? Start with that problem, think through what pieces need to come together for you to solve that problem. That's your journey. Um, and that's the step one of your journey is, is defining that problem. Fantastic. Well, Danielle, this has been really great. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Hugh. 